0: Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.
1: Were there giants in North America in prehistoric times? If so, what happened to them? What do we even mean by giant? Well, welcome to the 742nd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on ON 1240 Radio and our 10th year on the air. I'm not Ben, he's... uh, Kind of doing the producer thing right now. I'm Paul and those really big questions, uh, were the result of our subject today and we want to welcome back, uh, he has not called in yet but he should in any, at any moment, uh, welcome back one of our favorite guest co-hosts of course, Steve LaPlume, uh, who has done some research on today's subject and we're very happy to have him back with us today.
0: I appreciate the invite back and glad to be here.
1: Very good. Alright, uh, so, Avoiding any further metaphors about size, uh, we will be happy when he calls in to welcome back a guest who has spent many years researching the subject of giants in North America. We welcome your calls today. Uh, and it's 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, or 401-766-1240 from just about anywhere else. Send emails uh, before, during, and after the show to paul at behindtheparanormal.com. And I will introduce Jason here and hope for the best. <laughs> this is the second week in a row we've had a little guest <laughs> trouble. Uh, Jason Jarrell is an investigative historian, avocational archaeologist, and public speaker. Other than ancient history, his studies include philosophy, comparative mythology, religion, and depth psychology. He is a frequent guest on. Well, as soon as I turn the page. On numerous radio shows and podcasts focused on ancient history, cultural studies, and politics, he has also appeared on Ancient Aliens, the television series, and this is his fourth appearance on Behind the Paranormal. His website, https, www.paradigmcollision.com. P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M collision, C-O-L-L-I-S-I-O-N dot com. Got all that? Got it. Okay. Well, as soon as he calls it, we can start a discussion. In the meantime, uh, Steve has done some. He's here today because uh, he is very interested in the subject of giants. And uh, what do you have to say about the subject, Steve?
0: Well, actually, um, my interest uh, comes from my... My mother. Um, on her side, she had a lot of tall people. We were just discussing back in the 1880s. She had some aunts and uncles that were six foot seven, seven foot two, just mm-hmm. huge people. Um, so I'm the runt of the family.
1: <laughs> well, on that happy note, I believe our guest is called in, and we will get right uh, right to Jason Jarrell on the uh, <clears throat> subject of prehistoric giants. Now, I, now, we maybe had some of them, but the, the ones you discuss are pretty much uh, more recent. Um, okay, Jason, are you with us? Oh, well, that's that's good to know. Don't hesitate like that. It sends up my blood pressure. Right. Jason, we're here today with uh, our special guest co-host, of course, obviously Ben, and a uh, special guest co-host, Steve LaPlume, uh, who's very interested in the subject. And uh, Ben, why don't you take it, take it away
2: with the first uh, questions here, if you... I prefer to ask a question instead of taking it away. Uh, Well, (laughs) alright. Well, Jason, well, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal, first of all. And it has been exactly two years since your last, uh, uh, you know, show with us. So what exactly is the evidence that there were giants? And is there anything uh, new on the front since you were last on the show?
3: Okay, so um, the evidence actually goes back in time of... In the 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, press reports, local township and county histories, and antiquarian journals recorded the discoveries of unusually large skeletal remains from burial mounds and other prehistoric tombs in North America. And many of the accounts describe skeletons ranging between seven and eight feet in height, while a lesser number of reliable reports describe individuals approaching 9 feet in height uh, these unusual skeletons were frequently described as possessing large thick crania massive lower jaw bones as well as occasional supernumerary teeth um, And while these remains were found throughout the United States, a particularly high concentration was found in the burial mounds of the Ohio River Valley. So in 1879, uh, through an act of Congress, the Smithsonian Institution was directed to conduct excavations in the burial mounds, not just in the Ohio Valley, but throughout the entire greater mississippi region and the smithsonian excavated tens of thousands of mounds and although their activities were largely destructive to archaeology some of their agents even sold artifacts on the black market Um, while their activities were, were very harmful to our understanding of a lot of these cultures uh Their reports, the reports filed by their field agents in the late 1800s actually describe the discovery of very many of these large skeletons. For example, in 1883 and 1884, uh, an agent named Colonel Norris of the Bureau of Ethnology investigated 50 Adina Burial Mounds at Charleston, West Virginia. This is part of the Smithsonian's Eastern Mound Survey. And his field notes and the report published with the Smithsonian mentioned the discovery of many large skeletons at this one site, which was a large ritual landscape. Uh, for example, in the Great Smith Mound in Charleston, uh, Norris discovered a large timber house-like structure inside the mound. And within the timber structure, there were multiple burials. The field notes mention six burials. Several of these were just referred to as very large, Uh, but this is the actual description from Norris's own field notes of one of the burials inside the structure. It says, at 19 feet in the bottom of this debris, we find together with the fragments of a rotten bark coffin, a gigantic human skeleton, 7 feet 6 inches in length. And he goes on to describe the copper bracelets and several other artifacts found with this skeleton. Uh, at Spring Hill in Charleston, uh, Norris opened another Adena mound and records this passage. In the center of the mound, three feet below the surface, was a vault eight feet long and three feet wide. In the bottom of this, among the decayed fragments of bark wrappings, lay a skeleton fully seven feet long, extended at full length. And so we find in the 1800s, the Smithsonian recorded a good many of these remains. In fact, in the 12th Annual Report of the Bureau of Ethnology, published in 1891. There are around 17 skeletons recorded in this one report alone between seven and eight feet in length. These remains were not by any means only found in the Ohio Valley. Uh, T. Apolli and Cheney recorded uh, similar discoveries in New York State in Burial mounds in his archaeological survey which is called Ancient Monuments of Western New York and this one was published in 1860 there was a burial mound near Rutledge in which Cheney records the discovery of eight skeletons which were probably also inside of a timber structure inside the mound and he measures the femur of one of those skeletons as 28 inches So based on this measurement, this skeleton would probably have been between eight and eight and a half feet in height. And Cheney, by the way, was a civil engineer who one would think must have had some level of competence in measuring. And so we've also found numerous reports where the Smithsonian agents themselves measured the skeletons by measuring the femurs. We mentioned some of that in our book. So... There was all. There was always a credible history of finding these large remains in the burial mounds of this culture. And what actually occurred was the discoveries continued all the way up through the 20th century. I think the most recent report that we've cited so far in our work dates to around 1982. Um, During the 20th century, they were actually discovered again by several modern archaeologists whose work is still considered essential to our understanding of this culture. One of these individuals was William S. Webb, who was a physicist who became head of the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at the University of Kentucky in 1929. And Webb excavated numerous Adena mounds in Kentucky in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And in 1951, at the Dover Mound in Mason County, Kentucky, he discovered a large Adena skeleton, which he measured as 84 inches from the skull to the foot, which is just around 7 feet tall. So Webb went on to work with a physical anthropologist named Charles Snow to really iron out the physical anthropology of these people, known as the Adena people, or the Adena mound builders.
1: I was just going to ask you to explain that. Go ahead. The culture? Yes.
3: So the Adena mound builders, uh, this culture in the Ohio Valley dates to sometime between Around 1000 BC and somewhere around 300 AD. So they were, this culture was active for a very long time and they were the first to construct burial mounds and earthwork enclosures and probably effigy mounds in the Ohio Valley. And the Adena culture, it's important for me to point out, was kind of one link in the chain of a number of associated cultures which were probably ancestral one to another in the Northeast that date back to at least uh, five or 6,000 years ago. Uh, So this was a part of a very long legacy, and the archaeologists in the 20th century referred to this sort of overall uh, cult as the Northeastern Cult of the Dead, that span several millennia. This chain of cultures includes the Old Copper Culture of the Great Lakes, the Adena culture, and also the Hopewell culture, which sort of succeeded Adena in the Ohio Valley and raised some very famous earthwork sites, including the Newark Earthworks. Okay.
1: All right. Uh, now, we uh, wanted to ask one thing that we the three of us were discussing before the show today, Jason. Uh, what do you, what what constitutes a giant? Now, now, we were saying that people in previous centuries tended to be shorter, so anybody who was really tall would be a giant, I suppose. And of course, there are certain basketball players today, you know, you get really really tall people. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, you get to Steve's ancestors and all. Uh, has any DNA work been done on these remains to determine if they uh, there was something unusual about them other than ordinary human genome?
3: Okay, those are all really good questions. Uh, I'll I'll start with what constitutes a giant because uh, that's very important uh, in regards to this field of study. Uh, to begin with. Although we titled our book Ages of the Giants, uh, the subtitle is A Cultural History of the Tall Ones. And usually in our work, we refer to these people as the tall ones because that's actually what the Native American elders refer to them as, and I find it to be a much, a much more fitting term hmm. when we consider what we're actually looking at. As a part of our research, we acquired hundreds of archaeological reports and studied them and referenced them, Uh, but one of the things we were able to do is to actually cross-reference actual field reports uh, for the same sites that are mentioned in a lot of the newspaper reports and local histories uh, that are usually cited today as evidence of ancient giants. And what we found, as I stated earlier, was that the credible reports all seem to be mentioning people who were somewhere between seven and eight feet in height, sometimes reaching as large as eight and a half to nine feet. Hmm. Now today, it's something like one in every 146,000 people is seven feet tall. The NBA in its entire history has had, I think, somewhere between 20 and 25 people who were seven feet tall or over. And these are all statistics that my friend and colleague, Dr. Greg Little, has come up with. Um, When we look at the cultures, in our book we have four major North American cultures that buried these people in their tombs. When we consider that Most of the large skeletal remains from just the Adena, for example, date to within a few hundred years of one another. That's that's why we feel that this is a true anthropological mystery. Uh, These cultures also engaged in widespread cremation practices, and the archaeologist Don Dragu from the Carnegie Museum in the 1960s pointed out that even many of the bones that survived cremation appeared to have the large physical characteristics. So that is why we refer to these individuals as the tall ones. In my opinion, there has never been any evidence found to suggest that some of the more sensational reports of people 18 or 20 feet tall being unearthed here in North America, there's really nothing that's ever been found to suggest that anything like that um, specifically could be accurate. Um, So hopefully that sheds some light on on your first question. Uh, Mm -hmm. In terms of DNA, um, there have been DNA tests conducted on skeletal remains from several of the cultures that buried the tall ones in their tombs, including the Hopewell Mound Builders and also the late prehistoric Mississippian Mound Builders, and that culture dates from around 900 A.D. all the way up to the time of European contact. And the DNA tests thus far... uh, have revealed nothing truly uh, bizarre, or there, there are no X factors that have appeared in the DNA test. And at this point, they all tell us that uh, these are ancient Native Americans.
0: Okay. Steve? Yeah, yeah. I had a question um, when I was kind of prepping for this show. I was doing a little b- bit of research, and um, there was a lot of uh, mounds also in Ireland and the United Kingdom that were unearthed that also had giant skeletons that were unearthed in there. I was wondering if you had any cross reference or if you had mm-hmm. studied into that at all. Yeah. Maybe they're the same culture somehow, or yes. Um,
3: I'm actually sitting on several chapters for a book right now about that. Oh. Uh, we actually applied the same research techniques that we use for the book that's out now to the cultures in Europe where there have been reports of large skeletal remains from ancient mounds. And One of the things I should mention, first of all, is that we found that in multiple instances, the European discoveries ended up being from uh, modern cemeteries that have been built near some of the prehistoric hill forts and enclosures in Europe. So some of the reports which have been assumed to be ancient were coming from uh, medieval cemeteries that were located near earthwork sites. But, But that being said, many of them actually are describing large individuals from those mounds And it is true that many of the mounds in Europe are very similar to the earthworks inside the United States and and in the Ohio Valley. Now, several years ago, we were following the original theories of the American antiquarians uh, who in the 1800s believed that these were the same cultures, the cultures from Western Europe and North America, uh, however, when we look deeper than the similarities of the earthworks, we see that these two peoples had a completely different lifestyle. The burial mounds in Western Europe were raised uh, by the first copper and bronze age chiefs. Um, this was a, a cultural revolution that happened in Europe, the Bronze Age people and copper Age people completely supplanted the earlier Neolithic people and they brought with them a new type of culture whereas in North America if we just look at the cultures ranging around 4000 BC all the way up to around 900 AD these people remained hunter gatherers uh, they had no big agra they they weren't uh, relying on the types of innovations that came with the European Neolithic Revolution. Uh, they did not have uh, a Bronze Age. They, they had a Copper Age, and they had fabricated some extremely advanced copper tools very early in their history. Uh, but what we found in cross-referencing the newspaper archives with the actual archaeological reports was that reports of skeletons in North America that were found with either coins or uh, Bronze Age armor, uh, just because those things are mentioned in some newspaper reports, they all turned out to be misreports of prehistoric North American copper objects. Uh, so there are a lot of reasons why these cultures were different, even though they were superficially similar.
1: Hmm okay uh, i 'm going to take a question here or or, or offer a question Jason um, and I think we talked about this once before so, several years ago. The simple issue of gravity and its effect on the human metabolism is multiplied when you have a person of extremely large size okay so i 'm thinking of Robert Wadlow, who was um, twenty only lived to be twenty two years old and he was he was uh, eight feet eleven inches high uh reportedly a very nice person from Illinois and uh, but but his his system simply broke down as he became an adult and uh because of his large size i mean what what's your what are your thoughts on people of this size uh, being a regular occurrence in prehistoric times and what their health might have been like and is there any indication if i may add to that uh from the remains about how old they were and how long they lived
3: sure sure um so In the 1900s, William S. Webb, Charles Snow, and Don Dragoo, three very credible sources, um, two archaeologists and one physical anthropologist, studied the remains of the large skeletons that were found in the Adena Mounds and wrote about the large size and the powerful nature of the bones. These bones featured marked eminences for the attachment of muscles. So we know that these people were very powerfully built. So in terms of, you know, the the question that people like to ask is could this have simply been some type of disease? And uh, the answer is no. Uh, because the anthropologists would have been very quick to point that out because you can actually tell from the skeletal structure whether someone suffered from some type of disorder that caused them to, to grow to an exceeding size. Um, now, health-wise, we see some of these people are only between 30 and 40 years of age, Um, And that's the case for the large skeleton from the Dover Mound in Kentucky. Uh, In other instances, there are large remains that I'm writing about at present from southern Ontario um, for the next book of an individual in their 60s. So we see the same range uh, of age and health as we see Really, in people living today, there doesn't seem to have been any standard which places them as usually living longer than us or shorter than we do. I I will say that people during that time often enjoyed a better health than we do today, but that's because the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, depending on the, the resources of the environment you're living in, can be far more beneficial to human health and longevity than a sedentary lifestyle that's based on the type of food industry we have today.
1: Yeah, you're right. I'll have to interrupt you Jason, because we have to take our bottom of the hour break. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, broadcasting here since 1946. And it's our 10th year on the air on this show. We're very happy to have with us today Jason Jarrell, our marvelous guest, and our marvelous guest co-host, Steve LaPlume, along with Ben and I. So we'll be right back. Stick with us.
2: Hi, this is Joe Callahan. Join me weekday mornings 5 to 8 for the ON Morning Fun Show. We'll have local news, state news, national news, Lou Mandeville on sports, great music, fun features, and trivia. Weekday mornings 5 to 8 on ON 1240, O O N One Socket Radio.
0: ON
3: Radio, Worldwide.
0: Well, we're back
1: with Behind the Paranormal and our guest Jason Jarrell. And uh, we wanted to mention some charities that we have adopted. Uh, we will do that at the end of the show in our announcement period. Uh, but they involve uh, veterans charities and charities for Haiti's orphans and charities run by people we know. And there are links to that on our website, BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, also, kind of a shout-out to our, our listener, Scott, who came in to the studio earlier uh, to get a couple of, of books for a friend of his. Uh, it was lovely meeting him, and we're very happy that he enjoys the show. One of our local listeners here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and uh, uh Northern Rhode Island is uh, and, and uh, between the Boston and Providence area is our our usual um, uh, listening area and uh, we 're very happy to have met him today so let 's get back to our questions uh, now Steve, do you have uh, further questions for Jason?
0: Um,
1: no, not at this time. Okay, so we'll continue. You sound <laughs> like yeah. a lawyer with the way you said that. I <laughs> to stop uh, and think for a second. Okay, the prosecution <laughs> rests. All right, so Jason, uh, very, very. Um, I, I think that's a very satisfying answer you gave to the, the question of the medical issues here. Now, where did these large, the, these tall ones come from and were they just absorbed into the population later? I mean, what, what, what was their origin and what was their fate as far as you know?
3: Okay, so the first book, really is an archaeology book. It covers around 4,000 years of ancient cultures and shows um, and basically gives the reader uh, the evidence that these people existed in the past. The sequel that I'm working on now is, is really devoted to answering those kinds of questions that you just asked. Uh, the readership has asked uh, over the last year or so that we try to address these questions and give people our own theories. And uh, in terms of where they came from, that's that's a very important question. I feel like this is an important mystery for anthropology because uh, some of these cultures that, that buried the, the large people in their tombs in North America are only a couple of hundred years old. In fact, there is at least one site where multiple large skeletons were unearthed in the southeast with European trade goods. So we know that some of these people were actually those recorded by the, the first European explorers who hmm. did also record encounters with, uh, with giants and large people when they came into North America. But the origin of the tall ones, just to give you an idea of how ancient that origin must be, uh, in our next book, we're tracing them from ancient times to modern times, and we're going to reveal who their modern descendants are among the Native Americans. And one of the things that I can say now is that the genetics behind this type of physical anthropology are present in the peoples of at least five major linguistic groups in North America. Now, what that means is, with the great antiquity of this type of anthropology, is that the origin of the Tall Ones has to go back to the initial peopling of what we call the United States today. So we're going back more than 10,000 years. So that should give you an idea of, of the age of this anthropology. And also, um, it, it really shows how this is not something that was simply a gene spread by a certain group. You know, It, it does not belong to the ancestors of any one particular Native American people. And that really... Uh, corroborates some research that was done by the great Native American scholar Vine Deloria, Jr. in the 1990s. Vine was a a theologian and a Native American activist. Uh, He was deeply involved in law, and he believed in the tall ones, and he interviewed uh, multiple Native elders from different tribes in the Northeast on the subject. And the elders explained to Vine that there had been a time when Native Americans generally had these individuals among them. So it's not confined to any one particular uh, language group or culture group. It's a very widespread phenomenon in the history of the peoples of North America.
1: Okay, Jason, uh, we're going to give you, actually, Steve has a question, but first I'd like you to talk about your books and your website, and and uh, before we burn up the show and you don't have a chance to do that, where people can get them, etc.
3: Okay, so the website is called ParadigmCollision.com. Uh, you can find a lot of free articles on the website, uh, we also have some of uh, the fantastic artist Marcia K. Moore's recreations of living Adena and Hopewell people that were made from actual skeletal remains on the website. Uh, the book is called Ages of the Giants, a Cultural History of the Tall Ones in Prehistoric America, and it's available on lulu.com, that's L-U-L-U.com. And I'm also on Facebook if anyone would like to reach out and connect.
0: Okay, Steve. yeah, yeah, the question I've got is um, you mentioned anthropology. Uh, I'm just kind of curious the mainstream archaeology, I mean, you don't hear anything about them digging into this. What is their kind of viewpoint on all this? Where are they at?
3: Okay, well, mainstream anthropology um, in the early 1900s, Uh, An individual named Elise Herdlichka shut down the reporting of large-scale remains by the Smithsonian itself. Hmm. Uh, Herdlichka was the curator of anthropology at the Smithsonian, was the first real giant denier in American anthropology. And in those days, uh, the universities basically just followed the Smithsonian uh, in, in what they taught. So at that point in time, the subject became taboo. This, this sort of silencing, though, of the bones really wasn't universally embraced because there were archaeologists all the way up through the 1980s who still reported finding the large skeletons. Uh, we have reports coming all the way up through the 20th century and some of these were some of the most important names in archaeology. Uh, Don Dragoo, for example, uh, published a book in 1963 called Mounds for the Dead, and this book to the to the present day is considered the most important study of the Adena culture that's ever been conducted. And yet that book not only mentions and Dragu's own discovery of one of these large skeletons but it features an extensive section on their physical anthropology uh, Dragu believed that the, the tall ones the people with the large physical anthropology might have been a type of a specific subgroup that interbred with one another among the ancient population so what we have is kind of an Asymmetric silencing of the truth. You know, there's never been really a universal denial, just a, an institutional blacklisting of this type of information. I think today the situation really comes down to, you know, if, if I were an archaeologist and I was dependent upon peer review to receive my funding for projects. And I was going to write about a topic like this that is as controversial. As this one, um, I might be tempted not to because the peer review process would probably tear me apart.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we do run into this politics of science, I suppose. You know, but well, the only thing that that makes me a little makes me wonder is that you know this sort of, of secrecy does seem to be present in in any in many areas of um undiscovered science if you want to say uh bigfoot and all this business or whatever you want to call it i mean there seems to be uh, that's that's uh th- there there seem to be government efforts to hush that up not to sound paranoid but but it's true all right so i mean if you were to come jason with uh, stories of you know jack and the beanstalk style giants who were you know 50 feet high yeah i mean i could see there there'd be some sort of um serious opposition to that but these people, compared with those sorts of fairy tales, just don't seem to be big enough to warrant uh, any sort of, of um, you know, attack on scientific orthodoxy. I mean, what are your feelings on why this is being kept secret? <laughs> if, if that's even the right way to put it.
3: Well, I, actually, I do feel like it is. They do represent an attack on orthodoxy because there were many hundreds of them found and. Keep in mind, my research is confined to the Great Lakes area and the Ohio River Valley. Uh, We're more than aware that uh, these these types of remains were found in prehistoric tombs across the entire continent. They were found in Canada, and they were also found in South America. Uh, But the reason for that could have something to do with this sort of, if you look at the supposed history of the human race, uh, what we see are different types of humans who sort of come and go to make make way for the next uh, descendant. You know, we see Neanderthal, Neanderthal exits the stage, and then we see Cro-Magnon. When we consider not only how old these remains are, but also how recent many of them are, uh, the Adena culture, for example, we're talking about a culture that's 2,000 years old. Uh, these are very recent. Uh, individuals. So it could be that this throws a wrench in the in the works of, you know, the the supposed evolutionary history of man where instead what we see are many different types of people who may have lived contemporaneously, which really it sounds like a different type of world to me than what than what we're taught in the textbooks. Mm. And that could get into things like the Denisovians and other discoveries that have been made in recent
2: times.
1: Okay, uh, Ben, you've been sitting here very quietly uh, wrestling well, with the board.
2: Do you have any thoughts? <laughs> well, you know, wrestling with the board is always a fun thing. Um, well, I, 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 think it's. I, I think back to like old mythologies and such that you know talked about giants and all that, and that they weren't necessarily gigantic people. There's was a quote that I read recently. I forgot where I read it. Um, referring to both Greek and Norse mythology, that, you know, giants weren't necessarily gigantic people. that uh, They were, you know, like maybe a few feet taller than everybody else, but, you know, they were more of just a race of people, not just, you know, just these gigantic creatures, although in Norse mythology they do refer to frost giants and fire giants and all, all, yeah. of, all of that, and they all sort of disappeared into Jotunheim after, like, Odin upset them or something, because they were always at war with the Odin and his... His kin and all that garbage. There but was a
1: rather entertaining uh, political poster uh, circulating in 2016. It says, "Vote Odin." Uh, when's the last time you saw an ice giant?
2: That's, that is, he is a very good point. To get rid of them, and he did. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I mean, that, he, that's totally sorry I mean, I do remember that actually. And yeah. I, I mean, you're right. He did. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he did get rid of those. Well, regardless
1: of the political political implications of the giants. Uh, well, I just
2: think it's interesting that they've always sort of appeared in our our history and mythology a lot, like a lot of, a lot of other things, you know. And that's taken kind of seriously, as sure. you know, whether it's like symbolic or you know has something to do with the, the culture. But then when it's referred to giants, everyone's like, ah, oh, yeah, sh- that doesn't matter. That, yeah. Who cares? Yeah. I I think I don't really. I, I kind of, I get that, you know, the scientific orthodoxy would be un- under attack if there's something different than the narrative, but I mean, Darwin himself said, you know, I hope somebody proves me wrong one day. So it's like, mm-hmm. I don't quite understand, I just don't understand mo- modern archaeologists or modern science because, you know, the pursuit of truth and, like, you know, knowledge, the whole point is to, you know, make a hypothesis and challenge it not make a hypothesis, automatically make it a law.
1: That's what we'd like to think.
2: Yeah, that's... Like, you know, you're supposed to, like, have ideas and challenge them, and I don't understand why... You know, this is kind of a big deal. There was a whole culture of people living in America. That, you know, is, is fascinating. I'll toss it over to Steve, though. Yeah, See, I, I get
0: a thought on that, actually. Um, we're looking at it from our point of view today. If you look back at, you know, the turn of the century, late 1800s, 1900s, there was a big issue with Darwinism versus That's creationism. One, yeah. So are we going to crush Darwinism and these large creatures that could have been something different than the oh, narrative or the religious yeah. Well, right. I can, I mean, you know, I the can offer you some for, insight. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead, Jason.
3: Well, you're ta- he mentioned uh, going back to the time period, and that's very important, mm. uh, because the individual who initiated the policy of denial at the Smithsonian, Ailes Herdlichka, was a high-ranking member of an organization called the American Eugenics
2: Society. Uh, oh, yeah. And the,
3: uh, at the time uh, that Herdlichka Uh, began denying that the Smithsonian had ever found the large remains, which is still their policy to this day, Uh, the American Eugenics Society had staffed the Smithsonian and the American Association for the Advancement of Science with their own anthropologists. And the reason for that was they wanted to use science to justify racial laws in the United States, and they actually succeeded uh, by the mid-20th century, we had sterilization laws throughout the United States. We had uh, laws which forbade uh, people of different racial background to marry in some states, and the Carnegie family was actually working with the USDA and the American Breeders Association to begin building lethal gas chambers. And one of the groups, that the American Eugenics Society had targeted for elimination was Native Americans. Now, you mentioned Darwinism. Uh, What a lot of people don't realize is that the eugenicists around the world, the eugenics groups in America and Europe, one of the criteria that they look for in the bones of a person's ancestors, which would for them serve as an indicator that they were of a superior race with extraordinary stature. Hmm. So if the National Museum had recovered hundreds of skeletons from Native American tombs of individuals of extraordinary stature and build, then that would provide a real problem for the narrative they were trying to sell to the U.S. government and the public regarding uh, the racial composition of the Native American people.
0: Hmm. What a tangled wow. web we weave, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? I, well, precisely, because
1: I, <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking of statements by Reinhard Heydrich, the, the Nazi death master, you know, the SS and the SA, he had, he had it all that under Himmler, Uh that, that they studied the American eugenics program of the 1920s and 30s and took lessons from it, and, and we all know the result of that. So, heaven yeah. help us. Uh One other point might be... Um, Certainly to avoid that, but also uh, when you, the practic- ben 's practical mom is always pointing out that it 's all about bucks Paul you know, and so if you had if you've spent eighty or one hundred grand to get a degree an advanced degree in anthropology or, or archaeology, and somebody comes along mm-hmm. and questions it and finding's come along and question it, I think it 's only human that you 're going to unless you 're really really honest intellectually you 're going to um, oppose that, so I think that 's another factor. Mm-hmm. That, uh, it goes well, again, I can give you an orthodox. example. <clears throat> no, go ahead, Jim.
3: In, in 2016, I gave a presentation on this information in Ohio to a room of around 100 people, and I cited the 20th century archaeologist that I mentioned earlier who found the tall ones in my presentation. I even showed photographs of one of the skeletons. There was a major archaeologist at this presentation in the front row. Mm
2: -hmm. And
3: during my presentation, this archaeologist stated in front of all these people that he was going to double-check all my references, and if these skeletal measurements actually existed, he was going to publish a paper acknowledging that the tall ones existed. So several weeks went by, and finally I heard back from him And he had gone and double-checked all my references and found that the large remains were true. There was no reason to question the size of the skeletons. But then he said an interesting thing to me, and I think this will provide some clarity. He said, I don't understand why this is important, so I'm not going to publish it. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the issue at hand here is that academia is deciding for you what information should be important and what should not. Mm-hmm. Now, you may not think that, uh, that this information matters, and you're free to discard it. You're free to, to think that it, it doesn't mean anything. But for those people who do believe that it's important, shouldn't that be made available? Shouldn't that be acknowledged?
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's kind of a big deal, because, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a link to some of the history that we've lost. I mean, we as humans tend to, you know, discard parts of things that, you know, are don't seem very relevant. But, I mean, you know, wh- whether there's, like, wars and stuff, people with interesting stories to tell and whatnot, they just, they just disappear. Like, you know, the early invasions of, like, the UK by, um, you know, various invaders... There's so many like writings and stuff that are lost or even you know like the burning of the library of Alexandria.
1: Oh, good so word.
2: so many things are just lost to human history that it's it's kind of a big deal that there's like a whole civilization of people that lived here that we know little to nothing about and that our our trusted organizations, you know, for uh, in higher learning just don't don't care.
1: And it's a kind of a big deal. Well, maybe Jason has a thought or two on this in our last few minutes, but this uh, I'm thinking of, of the entire scenario we painted here with the giants. It could be the tip of, the, of, a, of, a, of an intellectual iceberg in the sense that there is um, a great deal of empty history. Uh, we have a million years, we're always pointing this out on the show, that we know nothing about when people were existing. And, and there, there are Michael Cremo, I'm thinking of, um, in his, his book, Forbidden Archaeology, points out all sorts of bizarre artifacts that indicate that... Um, Humanity probably has risen and fallen in the sense of stone tools to power tools as many as four, perhaps even five times. Uh, indigenous cultures around the world have similar uh, beliefs about this, and that's just, and we are still presented with a, for the most part, a linear vision of history. I mean, we started in the caves, and we ended up here in the W O O N, that sort of thing. Any thoughts on that, Jason?
3: Oh, certainly, and, and I, I appreciate the reference there to Cremo's book. That's an excellent book. Mm. Um, you know, when we, we go back 25,000 years, and, you know, that may be a long time, it may not, as you just, you just pointed out. Uh, but when we go back 25,000 years, uh, some of the earliest tombs that we know of from that period, we see people who carved toys for their children. We see people who were getting together to hunt mastodons. We see people who, even in the coldest parts of Europe, were able to construct homes that were so warm that they slept naked inside of them. We see terracotta figurines uh, of some type of a goddess cult, and we see an advanced burial cult. So even 25,000 years ago, among people who science will even acknowledge and and tries to portray as primitive, I don't see the primitive. Mm. Uh, I'm seeing people who seem to have gotten on rather well, who seem to have known what they were doing. And in many instances... uh, We see people in the archaeological record who, if we approach them with an open mind, they seem to be in some ways doing better than we are today. I think that our technology has actually made us very uncivilized. And when I see the ancient cultures in North America or Europe or even going back to the Upper Paleolithic, sometimes I wonder if I'm looking at people who may have chosen to reject the path that we're on today It's very arrogant of us to consider ourselves more advanced than anyone who came before us.
1: Yeah, I I don't think I've ever heard that put so well. As we're always saying, I'm always chilled. when, And we attend a lot of UFO conferences, and they say, oh, these advanced people. Well, I'd much rather have advanced people morally and spiritually than technologically. Who was the most advanced civilization in the 1930s in that sense? Are the Nazis who adopted American eugenics program? So um, very well put. Any final thoughts, uh, Steve? No. Okay, Ben. I'm
0: good.
2: Oh, I th- I always like to have a have a little laugh at our our friends on at, at slight of an expense to our our friends on ancient aliens. I I think I think you know maybe maybe it is possible that someone appeared and messed with us whatever that's possible too. But you know I can't I can't say every sort of Thing that is on there Oh, you know the pyramids could not have been constructed by humans it's too perfect it's like i don't i don't think that's fair to say that mm. you know humans are very smart creatures and they managed yeah. to figure out how to do all sorts of interesting things okay. so i mean attributing calling them stupid and just saying oh well an advanced society appeared and gave them power tools like that's <laughs> i don't i don't i just don't think that's fair because yeah, we've exactly. humans improved time and time again that like you know that we've overcome certain elements mm-hmm. whether you know, it be you know, weather elements or you know all sorts of adversity and manage to survive this long
1: okay. well Jason um, we're just about out of time thank you tremendously for another articulate approach to this subject and give us your website one more
0: time please
3: yeah the website is paradigmcollision.com and the book Ages of the Giants you can find on lulu.com that's lulu.com
1: very good. Thank you, sir. We will talk to you soon. Okay.
2: Thanks, guys.
1: Okay. Thank you. Ben, what do we got in the uh, cauldron here cooking this week?
2: Well, double double toil and trouble. Uh, we have next weekend, May 26th and 27th, meet us at the Saucer Symposium at the KRI Center for Consciousness Studies in Stratham, New Hampshire. And uh, this is the fourth year in a row we'll speak at the uh, Saucer Symposium. And on Saturday, we'll be presenting an entirely new program aliens and exorcism with some uh, conclusions you won't expect and we'll also do our second annual live broadcast from there on the 27th with a panel of speakers and this event helps raise funds for the uh, exeter ufo festival on labor day weekend which in turn uh, is a fundraiser for the local kiwanis Clu- uh, children's club there as well
1: yeah, they raised over $9,000 last year for children's charities at the Exeter UFO Festival. So on Saturday, July 21st, we'll be back at the Danbury Public Library in Connecticut to present a program on Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of based on our 2017 book of the same subtitle.
2: And on Labor Day weekend in September, we'll be back at the Exeter UFO Festival in New Hampshire, you know, just a hop, skip, and jump away, really, uh, with a new presentation and our annual live broadcast with a panel of speakers. As we uh, said there, or uh, this is a great annual uh, fundraiser for the Kiwanis uh, Children's Club, or Kiwanis Club Children's Charities uh, in Southern New Hampshire. And then on Columbus Day weekend in October, we'll once again uh, be at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Leominster, Massachusetts.
1: Now, Steve. Um, Steve is a man of mystery. Uh, <laughs> however, uh, tell us if, if is there any place people can find out more about you. You have a new website, uh, um, no, I understand.
0: No, actually, I'm just starting to get a website going. Um, it's going to be a YouTube channel, and it's going to be called uh, the Roland Thompson Project. But um, give me a couple months to get that. Okay. Going. Well, next time around,
1: <laughs> you, we'll, we'll give you a big splash on that. All right. Very good, good. Uh, Steve. Uh, we thank you for coming all the way from um, indeed our home away from home, New Hampshire, yeah. uh, today down here to Rhode Island to be on the show with us. So our 2016 book, uh, Ben's and mine, uh, "Behind the Paranormal: Everything You Know Is Wrong," is now available as an ebook on Amazon Kindle and Apple iTunes. Uh, it's available in stores as well, but people have been asking for that ebook for a very long time. So let's see, Ben, uh, what uh, what do we have coming up next week?
2: So next week. Uh, skipping a few pages ahead of me so next week which is uh, the 27th of May uh, we'll be doing uh, we'll be broadcasting live from the Saucer Symposium which we with, just
1: said I guess Yeah.
2: actually we didn't say that we didn't okay no but now now you know uh, so uh, from the Saucer Symposium we'll, we'll have a cast of thousands except it won't be thousands it'll probably be slightly less than thousands um, that'll include uh, Shane Searway Andy Kitt uh, Bob Schroeder uh, Mike Stevens Willie Hassel Lynn Nickerson uh, Phyllis Edger uh Edgerly, Ring, uh, Ronnie leblanc Bill Brock, Tom Spidolary, <laughs> Carolyn Larock. There's just so many names. Yeah, uh, Valerie uh, Lafaso. Uh, Pat Lewis, and, of course, uh, Alexander Petikoff, who was incredibly late to the show last weekend, so hopefully he can make up for it
1: no, next week, unless, right. unless
2: he's really late to that, too.
1: And well, with any luck, uh, Steve will be able to join us on the panel as well, uh, and, and we'll, uh, we'll let you know. you have to tune in to find out. Indeed. Uh, now, of course, the event itself is, uh, is very uh, available, and uh, check the uh, fourth annual Saucer Symposium on Facebook, and you'll, it'll bring you to all the information. Cool. So, uh, okay, there we are. So, Steve, what's your quote for today?
0: Yeah, it's a very personal quote, because I've made a few mistakes in my past. have them we all? The quote is, The glory of youth is the ability to survive your own mistakes. Hmm. Okay, I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno. And I'm Steve LaPlume, and thank you for joining us on this great cosmic journey, and we'll see you behind the paranormal.